Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express here are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I am super excited to welcome Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel to the podcast today. Dr. Emanuel is, uh, in my opinion, uh, and many other uh, people's opinions, one of the most erudite, prolific, and forward-thinking thought leaders in healthcare in our country. We're going to be covering a range of topics with a focus on payment, uh, as well as the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare delivery. And, and quite honestly, I'm just interested in hearing what is top of mind for Dr. Emanuel. Uh, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives, a, a university professor and co-director of Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, as well as a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Dr. Emanuel was the founding chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health, and from January 2009 to to January 2011, he served as the Special Advisor on Health Policy to the Director of the Office of Management and Budget and the National Economic Council. He is also a breast oncologist. He earned his MD at Harvard Medical School, completed his residency in internal medicine at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, and then an oncology fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Emanuel has written and edited 14 books and over 300 articles and is the world's most cited bioethicist. He's a frequent contributor to The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, and he appears regularly on television news. Dr. Emanuel, it's uh, such a pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast today. Well, I'm honored, and uh, thanks for reading all my uh, credentials. My mother will be happy. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't read all of them, uh, as you know, far short of that. But you know, I want to jump in with you. Uh, so many questions as I, I think about the, the body of work uh, you've accomplished. You published an article in the Wall Street Journal this past June. It's entitled, COVID-19 Will Transform Healthcare Insurance as We Know It. This piece was in keeping with your long-held opinion that we should shift from employer-based payment to universal payment in our country. And so I want to ask you the question, why do you believe universal payment is better for American employees and the American public in general? And how has the pandemic strengthen your opinion about that? Well, uh, to answer the last part first, if you just look at what's the dynamic, uh, people are losing insurance, they're losing their employer-sponsored coverage, they're either going to get onto Medicaid or they're going to uh, become uninsured. Whichever case it is, it's going to have a bad implication financially for hospitals and doctors uh, because the reimbursement from Medicaid is lower you know, this is potentially affect tens of millions of people. So you've got a huge shift out of employer-sponsored insurance onto government programs or no programs at all, uh, especially in states that haven't expanded uh, Medicaid. Um, and that's, you know, likely to make Medicaid uh, equal in terms of numbers, if not immediately, then in the short order with employer-sponsored insurance. So we're already very far along this path of, shifting. The second point uh, made in that Wall Street Journal article uh, is that, you know, we don't have to go to a single payer system where every 
body is paid for by the government or, you know, in, uh, like in Britain, a national health service, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, they have a system where you have competing health insurance plans, but you have a uniform payment to the plans. Uh, you have a uh, consistent payment by the plans to the doctors and hospitals. Uh, you have a uniform price on drugs. Um, you know, we, we ought to be, get to a more uniform price so people aren't being chosen on the basis of how much they reimburse the system. Uh, and it incentivizes uh, the system to improve quality. Uh, and we also need to structure the payment so that uh, hospitals and doctors have an incentive to be more cost efficient um, and make healthcare more affordable to the average American. That's really interesting. So it isn't a universal payment system doesn't mean one payer, doesn't mean sort of a Medicare for all. You can have multiple payers in that. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, you know, we have that example right here in the United States in Maryland, where they have one price uh, that all payers, whether Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance pay the hospitals. Uh, so it's it doesn't have to be that we have this crazy haphazard patchwork of a system with different prices, different negotiated rates, um, which, by the way, we should make quite clear, drives up costs. They're administrative costs because everyone needs to keep track of what the contracts are, needs to spend time negotiating the contracts. And that costs every American money without adding any health benefit whatsoever. Yeah, and that's not an insignificant administrative overlay as well. I think Medicare, it's like 2% versus the payers. It's what? It's much higher than that. Yeah, it all depends how you calculate things. In confidence, we can say it's tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. I worked at the Office of Management and Budget when you, uh, you said that. And, you know, separate from uh, the Defense Department, the Social Security, Medicare, we argue bitterly over billions of dollars. You know, this is one fell swoop. You could easily save tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. That could go to many good things, not the least of which is give it back to American families so they can spend it on what they need to spend it on. And how does fee-for-service payment fit into how you think about universal payment? Would would you change it to a different structure or or is that a separate issue? Um <laughs> It, it, it's a slightly separate issue, but it's also, it absolutely needs to be changed. And we are actively, uh, uh, me, that means me and my group at, at Penn, actively working to change it. Um, it needs to, you know, if you pay docs fee for service, they will do what they get paid to do. And things that they don't get paid to do, they might do, but, you know, it's much more haphazard. It's not consistent. Um, and we have seen the ill effects of this uh, from the COVID pandemic. I mean, hospitals and doctors uh, doing elective procedures have taken, you know, real financial beating. Uh, those procedures had to stop because of the need to preserve PPE, the need to make sure that we could uh, had uh, a surge capacity for patients with COVID. And that had a big financial hit on hospitals, especially, but also doctors. That seems a little crazy. The core uh, revenue model and margin model for our health system should not be elective procedures. Um, and that just seems like we're mispaying. So what do we need to do? Well, at least two things, in my opinion. We need to, where possible, shift to either capitation or bundles, some alternative payment model. 
we are we have a model uh, we've developed of paying primary care doctors capitation with incentives for improving the quality of care and lowering costs and improving patient experience and engagement. Or we should adopt bundles uh, where they're appropriate, where they can really work. A lot of procedures are best done through a bundle. Uh, we know that hips and knees work uh, can we can lower costs and uh, uh, maintain, if not improve quality uh, with bundles on them. The same thing can go for cabbages and percutaneous cardiac procedures. And we should expand uh, those and, and communicate to the healthcare system, the providers, we're gonna do this. You guys need to work together, improve the efficiency um, and uh, uh, improve the quality and consistency of these procedures. Um, the second thing we need to do is to the extent that we can't move off, immediately off fee for service on things, we need to re what we call rebalance the fee schedule, look at what we're paying for and fix it. So we don't pay uh, a lot of money for uh, certain procedures or certain uh, um, diagnostic tests like MRIs. Uh, and we pay more for uh, engagement with primary care doctors um, and you know, uh, meetings to discuss serious and, and complex issues like end-of-life care, which we tend to undervalue because they're not procedures. We have built a whole system that overvalues procedures and undervalues uh, engagement and, and care of the patient. That is a crazy system, especially when most of what we're dealing with is patients with chronic illnesses. Are you essentially reforming the uh, entire RBU system? Yes. I think you have to reform the RVU system. And so would you continue an RVU and just uh, rebalance it or would you eliminate it completely? Well, I would, I mean, you can't eliminate it immediately. It, it, at, at best, it has to be a phased approach. And you do have to uh, fix the way we calculate the RVUs. And in particular, the way that the RUC, that's the AMA's uh, committee that makes recommendations that are taken up by Medicare uh, to set the Medicare fee schedule, which is then used by private payers to establish their negotiations uh, with uh, hospitals and doctors. Um, so I, I would cut the, if I were there, I'd cut the ruck out and I would uh, have a government commission which looks at all those times and, and efforts provided that go into the RVU system and reevaluate them. Uh, we know that, you know, there's been studies, uh, my group and other groups have done studies that have shown that uh, many of the time estimates used by the RUC are simply wrong. They're estimates by a small number of doctors who have a conflict of interest, um, where a lot of them, certainly for every surgical procedure, you have in the chart, right, in the electronic health record, you have the start time of the surgery and the end time of the surgery. We can actually look at data and not rely on people's opinion, which tends to be distorted. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned the capitation and the bundle payments. The bundles themselves, though, don't eliminate the incentive to do more procedures. So in your model, how would, would it just be that they would be earning more balanced payment? How would you address that? First of all, so let's discuss bundle payment. It's to give one uniform payment for a in this case, let's talk about surgical procedures or other procedures, uh, with a 90 days, uh, they're financially responsible for any complications that arise because of the procedure so that there is a big incentive to maintain quality. First, 
it is true that it doesn't necessarily get rid of unnecessary services where, for example, instead of doing back surgery, you initially send patients to get physical therapy um, that we know can relieve a lot of the back strain well ahead of back surgery. Um, there are ways of designing them better so that doctors do, you switch the incentives. Um, but it also does have a slight tendency to make doctors, well, is this patient appropriate for this procedure or are there gonna be high complications in this case? Um, a lot of those high complications, you wonder, eh, should we be doing that surgery in this case? Is that a wise thing? And to the extent that it makes the doctors reevaluate, that's good. You also do provide an incentive for them to reduce surgical site infections, uh, to move, um, services to more cost-effective methods like physical therapy at home um, to be more efficient in the way they uh, actually uh, do the surgery. Um, so those, you know, you will get some advantage, it seems to me, on cutting out the marginal cases. You will get some advantage by switching to lower cost facilities, and you'll get some advantage by improving the efficiency uh, of what you're doing, maybe not opening up as many trays, maybe doing we know that doctors who do a lot of procedures actually are faster, have fewer complications, and, and that, you know, concentrating procedures in better performing doctors, all of that would be a big advantage, even if we didn't cut down the total number of cases, you still would cut down the cost and therefore make it more affordable for Americans. Well, it sounds like, yeah, and you know, I, I hear what you're saying. It sounds like also you're building in uh, metrics into it, quality and safety metrics that would also have an impact on inappropriate, uh, probably reducing or mitigating the number of inappropriate or avoidable surgeries. Have you and your team published on this new model, or are you planning to? Well, we have published, a, we published a paper on capitation. We converted all the primary care doctors in Hawaii uh, to a capitation model in conjunction with the uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield plan, HMSA. Um, and we published what that capitation model was. Since that time, we've actually, uh, you might say, automated it, built in technology so that if uh, uh, an insurer gives us uh, three years of, of payment information, we can actually generate the capitation arrangements. We can tweak those capitation arrangements uh, based upon quality incentives. Uh, maybe you want to boost the pay to primary care doctors. Um, and we're, we're actually in the midst of working with the Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina and rolling uh, this out. I will say that, you know, there are two things that we have to be cognizant of. First, in this moment, uh, when doctors, especially primary care doctors, are financially stressed, going to capitation could be a good deal for them because it would guarantee a revenue stream and allow them to uh, 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 cement in place their move to telemedicine for patients that don't need in-person uh, visits and still get allow them to get paid for it. Um, nonetheless, we also do know that lots of doctors uh, primary care doctors are suspicious. Capitation is simply a way of taking money away from me. Uh, I don't know what goes into that mysterious formula. And for that, we have worked out, you know, when we switched doctors in Hawaii, we had a lot of meetings with them to educate them about what it meant for them, to show them their personal financials, their three-year history, so that they could see how they going to capitation would affect uh, them. My group has, has a lot of experience in being honest brokers to try to um, uh, educate 
the primary care doctor that this isn't a way of just taking money away from them. This is actually a way of empowering them to manage patients the way they think best and not simply to be forced to do uh, what gets paid. It makes sense. I, and I was going to ask you that. What, what are uh, some of the arguments that uh, folks have made around capitation or some fears? And you're, you know, you're mentioning some that primary care physicians may have. But I mean, given the experience we've had with COVID-19, where primary care practices and doctors are, you know, closing offices, going out of business, you know, essentially leaving a lot of are thinking about leaving medicine completely because uh, they've been dependent on this fee-for-service payment, which has just crashed. And we don't know how it's going to come back and, and what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, thinking about capitation too, from the patient perspective, to me, it, it seems particularly in primary care we're talking about here, it seems like the ethically aligned payment system, fee-for-service in primary care, to me, seems unethical. And you are uh, obviously a bioethicist. You're an expert in this area. I'm curious as to what you think about the ethics and, and just the quality and safety and, and appropriateness of primary care under fee-for-service versus under capitation from a patient perspective. Yeah, I think from a patient perspective, you know, you're always worried when the person makes more money by doing more for you. You're always worried that uh, they're doing something that isn't necessary and maybe not in the most efficient way, or but in the way that actually gets them the most money. I mean, when we take our car in to get repaired and the repairman makes more money by fixing things, you're always in the lingering back of your mind is like, did that really need to be fixed? Did that was that really broken, or did they just wanna, you know, make more money? Same thing when the plumber comes to the house. You know, you're not an expert plumber; you're relying on the plumber for advice, and so often you just have a lingering thought. And the same thing is true. Now we've permitted it, or we indulge it more in medicine because we have this basic philosophy: more is better. And if I think anything, we should be aware of more ain't necessarily better. Every test, every treatment has side effects, um, and a lot of them are not necessarily for your benefit. Um, and so, you know, doing the right thing, managing patients properly, uh, you know, maybe uh, doctors didn't bring in telemedicine before. We could have. Uh, why? Not because it wasn't better for patients, but because we weren't getting paid for it. Similarly, for a lot of patients, it's going to be better to manage them at home, to have home care um, so that they don't have to go into the hospital. They don't have all that the, the stresses of hospital, whether it's a risk of an infection or uh, being awake the whole time because hospitals are not places to, to rest up. You know, uh, that we didn't do a lot of because it wasn't paid. We've got to get off this. We only do what's paid or we predominantly do what's paid. We've got to get to here's how it's best to manage the patient. And that is, I think, the, the key uh, of capitation. And by the way, you also have an incentive to keep patients healthy and out of the hospital and not needing as much. So educating patients on self-management is really an important aspect of capitation. And I think it's financially incentivized. And again, that's gonna be good for patients. The argument that and the concern that patients might have that under a capitated primary care model that their physicians would do less. What, what would you say to that? Look, the, the problem in healthcare is every financial system has a bias and the best protection against physicians incentive to do less is for the system to monitor their quality on key metrics. And 
you know, when we rolled out the capitation for primary care in Hawaii, and when we're doing it in North Carolina, in both places, we had key metrics on quality and looked at the quality uh, of patient care. So you don't just let, you know, let doctors do it and walk away. You let, you know, what, what did Ronald Reagan say? You know, trust, but verify. Um, and, you know, the verification is we're going to look at key metrics. What is that blood pressure? Are you really controlling it? What is that cholesterol? If you've got a diabetic patient, are you doing the necessary things? Are you measuring their hemoglobin A1C? Are you measuring their cholesterol and putting them on a statin? Are you sending them to the ophthalmologist once a year? Are you sending them to the podiatrist? Um, so you do the things that are absolutely necessary to show that you're getting high quality care to the patients. And we should be honest, the quality of care we're getting today in the fee-for-service system, often not terrific. And uh, uh, we should not delude ourselves. Well, we're getting a lot of tests. That means we're getting high quality care. Um, no, uh, we know that a lot of the basic stuff like controlling blood pressure, like uh, controlling high cholesterol, we're not doing. And we're not doing consistently at you know the 90 plus percent level the way we should be doing them. You recently published a book just this year, uh, Which Country Has the Best Healthcare is the title of the book, Which Country Has the Best Healthcare. And the world's best healthcare. Oh, <laughs> the world's. And so, you know, my question is along these lines, we know that our nation consistently for years has ranked at the bottom in terms of healthcare quality outcomes, safety outcomes compared to the other developed nations. So I'm, I'm curious, why is that? And again, what have you learned in publishing this book? And who out there can we learn from? What are, what are some key lessons? Wow, there's a lot of questions here. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. No, uh, it's why I wrote the book. <laughs> what can we learn? Uh, how do we? So we didn't rank the way, say, uh, other groups have ranked countries. There are probably nine rankings out there uh, that were counted by a French research group. We don't believe in that ranking. What we did is to look at metrics uh, that we think uh, people care about or that people ought to care about uh, across many things like, you know, in insurance, are the benefits comprehensive? And, you know, it's good to report that the United States has pretty, you know, the 10 essential benefits in the Affordable Care are pretty comprehensive, certainly compared to many other countries. Um, do you have free choice of doctor, primary care doctor and specialist? And here we can report that there are many countries that do better than the United States. Thank you very much um, at a lower cost. Um, how long do you have to wait to get appointments? Are there waiting times for medical procedures? Um, do you have free choice of hospital? Uh, what are the co-pays that go along with getting uh, care and services? Um, Thank, by the way, many countries have zero deductible, zero copay for using the healthcare system. Canada, Britain, Germany, no copay for going to the, to the primary care doctor. Uh, some, many countries have very nominal copays. And by the way, their total out-of-pocket payment uh, in every country is much less than the United States. Um, so we looked at those kind of metrics. We also looked at you know, other metrics like how innovative are they on delivering care for chronic illness? How innovative are they in delivering mental health care? Um, so we looked at a whole package of systems. It is fair to say there are some areas that the United States stands out in. Um, we are 
It is true. In cancer care, we're generally at the top, sometimes number one. In breast cancer, for example, we're number one, um, sometimes in the top five. Uh, so cancer is a place where the United States you know, really does perform well. Uh, um, but in other areas, we're not so hotsy-totsy, and we're not that good. You know, uh, The survival after acute myocardial infarction, a lot of the pioneering research on how to treat uh, acute heart attacks, American, and yet deploying it, putting it out in the system, we're not so good at. Um, and our outcomes, 30-day uh, survival, aren't that great. So, you know, it's a pause. And then, of course, all of us know that we're not very good at infant mortality or maternal mortality. Um, and, you know, part of it is we don't have an integrated system that makes some group of doctors responsible for the continuum of care from start to finish. Uh, and that, I think, is a major, major deficit of our system. We have a fragmented system, and its fragmentation undermines good care. So just, you know, ob are not responsible for baby outcomes, financially or otherwise, on their quality, right? That's not a good way to incentivize them to perform better. And it's not a good way for them to think about what they're doing and actually work in concert with the pediatricians to make sure it's not just a good delivery, but it's also a good uh, a survival of the infant when they go home and through the first year. Um, it seems to me we need to change that. Lots of hospitals rely on admitting uh, infants to the neonatal intensive care unit for money because it's a big profit center. That's a silly, again, a, just a silly way for us to manage kids and say, oh, we, we have a lot of neonatal intensive care units, therefore we give great care. No, let's look at the outcomes because the outcomes, we don't give great care. And that is not a good thing. Or we, we do ultrasounds every minute and that's a good thing. No, ultrasounds on normal pregnancies, which are most of them, really don't make a difference to outcomes. Um, and uh, they, they certainly add costs because we charge a lot for them, but they don't necessarily add uh, to the outcomes. So I think, you know, we've got to be more outcome focused and monitor those outcomes or monitor the processes of care, like the hemoglobin A1C, that we know heavily correlate with good outcomes. Yeah, two questions off of this, and you cover a lot in that book, uh, and thank you for your response here. First of all, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it, it sounds to me when you talked about someone looking at the patient being accountable for the continuum of care, that, that, to me, that sounds like primary care. Uh, and so do other countries have a more robust primary care system? Am I on the right track with you? Or what is the message there? What is the learning? What is the lesson we could take back to the U.S.? Yes. So, so the answer is you're right. And different countries have different systems. So uh, in, in the Netherlands, the primary care doctor is very much a gatekeeper. Uh, the primary care doctor is entrusted with a lot of responsibility. Um, and uh, we learned a few things about that. First of all, um, uh, they have responsibility not just for primary care in the usual sense, but also for mental health care. And uh, nearly 90% of them have a special nurse in their practice that deals with mental health issues. Really important and, and co-locate someone who's well-trained on mental health with the primary care doctor. We thought that was an important innovation, both in mental health and in how we're delivering care. 
Uh, it is true that a lot of people in the Netherlands, uh, especially foreigners who visit the Netherlands, complain about the Dutch primary care doctor. It's like they're not quick to put you on antibiotics for a sore throat. They tend to be, you know, let nature take its course. It'll heal you um, uh, before they refer patients to specialists in hospitals. Um, but, you know, the Dutch do very, very well. Um, that's one model. But uh, there are other countries where you could go to 10 primary care doctors in a day if you want. Germany's like that. You get free choice of primary care doctor. There's no limit on how much you can go uh, that doesn't actually cost you. One of the things I do think um, right now, you know, uh, primary care is about seven to nine percent of total insurance uh, payments. Um, that's low probably should be more. We should entrust primary care doctors with doing more, like uh, uh, co you know, having to have them co-locate with mental health care and provide those services, have a, a nurse coordinator who can coordinate for patients who have chronic illness. We should up the amount that we are willing to pay them uh, so that they do assume more responsibility, but also hold them you know, accountable for the outcomes that really matter to us. You know immunizations, blood pressure, and, and the other things I mentioned on diseases that are primary care uh, diseases. I also think on the flip side, patients should experience, you know, we should get rid of copays to see the primary care doctor. There should be no deductible, no copay. So to go to the primary care doctor, it's literally free. Um, and I think that's very important to incentive, reorient us as Americans to going to see our primary care doctor rather than you know immediately going to an urgent care facility or a specialist or the hospital emergency room. And I think this would be a very important change and entrust the primary care doctor with that longitudinal management of patients. It's brilliant. You know, so you were saying five to seven percent of the total spend in our country is on primary care, which is seems really low. Do you have a sense of in other countries what the percentage on primary care compared to total cost of care? I don't know, but it, certainly in many countries, it's it's higher, in part because the differential between payment to primary care doctors and payment to specialists is not as large as in the United States. Specialists make substantially more in the United States than they do in other countries. The maternal fetal mortality, which in our country, in the United States, the rate of, of maternal fetal mortality is so much greater. I think it's two and a half times greater, something like that, for if you're a black infant versus a white infant being born in the country. And the same is true. I think I think it's actually three or four times if you're a black woman delivering your likelihood of dying uh, compared to a, a white woman. That is, you know, one manifestation of a larger issue, which we've now been talking about in the last few months, I think uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the disparities uh, in death rates along racial lines is, is quite shocking, but consistent with everything else before it. So the issue of systemic and institutional racism in our healthcare system, you are a bioethicist. I have to believe you've thought about this uh, quite a bit and written about it. What do you think about it and what should we be doing about it? Uh, well, we have an article coming out in The Atlantic about uh, this and what, what the healthcare system can do. So let me make a few points. First of all, if we really are serious about um, the disparities in health outcomes, longevity, uh, uh, many of these other outcomes, a number of diabetes cases, heart attacks, cancer, we really have to focus not just on the healthcare system. So I think that that's the first message. You got to focus on employment, housing, nutrition, exercise, smoking, uh, a whole series of 
other items, because we know that in terms of health outcomes, longevity and others, health care, the services we provide, account for 10 to 15% of the actual health outcomes. But these other things like nutrition, housing, work, um, transportation, they account for 40% or more of health outcomes. So we have to broaden our aperture. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are a series of, of things we can do within healthcare. First, we know that there's a big disparity in insurance. Blacks, Hispanics are much less likely to have health insurance than whites. We've made tremendous progress on that in the Affordable Care Act, but we haven't gotten rid of that gap. We gotta get to universal coverage. You know, that's lesson one. Um, that's gonna require uh, solving the Medicaid coverage problem. My brother and I have made a suggestion that we ought to federalize Medicaid. I would go even further. We ought to collapse Medicaid with the exchanges and probably with uh, Medicare Part C, that's the um, advantage or the managed Medicare part, into one big exchange. And I think that would be a much better approach increasing the amount of uh, uh, number of people in the exchange, evening out the risk profiles. Um, second, we also need to be aware that coverage is one thing, access to doctors is another, and traditionally Medicaid has uh, paid less and therefore access for Medicaid patients has dropped. We do know that when you pay more, for example, when the Affordable Care Act increased payment to primary care doctors taking Medicaid patients, actually access and getting an appointment uh, in a shorter time improved dramatically. Um, and we can do that. We can get rid of co-pays and we can pay Medicaid patients, uh, doctors who take Medicaid patients more, especially at the primary care level, which I think is very, very important to do. So that's coverage, that's access. Um, but then there's a whole series of things I think that we can do in addition train more minority healthcare workers. Uh, we know that's important for trust. We know that's important for care. Uh, it's going to be uh, something we need to rededicate ourselves to. Uh, we still have the number of African-American physicians is still much less than the number of African-Americans in the population. And that just on its face doesn't look right. And we need to train everyone in understanding their biases about patients. We also need to understand that the system is extremely complex to use. I just had, uh, unfortunately, a friend diagnosed with colon cancer, and she was telling me, you know, I don't know how people who, who you know, are working two jobs and, and don't have a college degree do this, coordinate all the parts of the system. It has just become so complex. You know, just for cancer, you need to go get diagnostic tests like a colonoscopy if it's colon cancer and a CT scan. You need to see a surgeon, a radiation doctor, a medical oncologist. That complexity and navigating it is something that uh, really shouldn't fall to the patient. They need help, which is why when, you know, the federal government tried to bundle payment program with, with oncology, it required a navigator to help patients. So I think understanding the challenges of using the system from the patient's perspective is going to be critical. So providing community healthcare workers or navigators or what have you, absolutely essential. And then, you know, our hospitals are big. They, they have to provide social benefits. If they're not for profit, they need to figure out 
how to help the community uh, to actually have good health outcomes, uh, whether it's, you know, providing a nurse in the school to treat asthma so kids don't have to get out of school and, and take time off, or whether it's providing better nutrition in the communities, underserved communities, minority communities, all of that is critical, uh, it seems to me, to uh, getting rid of these disparities. Great, great recommendations there. Final question, it's now February, 2021, and you have a few minutes, uh, you're sitting in the Oval Office, whoever is president and VP are sitting on the uh, opposite couch from you, staring at you, uh, keenly interested in your guidance in terms of uh, what they should be focusing on. What are the two or three or so most critically important issues in U.S. healthcare that need to be addressed now? And uh, there you are, you've got you know, a few short minutes with them. What is your advice uh, to the administration? What should they be focusing on? What must they change now for the future of healthcare? Well, we have to get to universal coverage. And as I mentioned already, you know, there, there's an approach by federalizing Medicaid and merging into one larger exchange. Uh, I think that's, we got to get to 99, 100% coverage. And that's the only way we're going to do it with auto enrollment. Uh, that's what, and we don't have to get rid of insurance companies to do that. As I mentioned, that's what the Netherlands do in Germany does. Second, uh, we have to switch payment uh, as I've mentioned uh, already, to more value-based payment, capitation, bundles, um, and rebalancing the fee schedule. And the third thing that clearly has uh, got to be at the top of the agenda is we have to do something about drug prices. You know, we have a huge difference between what we pay in the United States and what any other country pays for drugs. And that accounts for a third of the price difference between the United States and other countries uh, that spend a a fair amount on medicine. Um, we have way higher prices. We have prices uh, for drugs. You know, uh, I'm an oncologist, as you mentioned. There are drugs against nausea and vomiting. There's a drug that is sort of generic. Uh, and, and recently, a new drug has been approved. That new drug uh, was proven in a trial that showed that it was no worse than the other drug. So it's not better. It didn't prove that it was better or superior. It's just the same. It's another, it's a, you know, a kind of me too. It's no worse than what we have. And yet its price is much, much higher per dose uh, than the pre-existing drug on the market. That makes no sense. In most countries, you can't, if you have a sort of me too drug that's not uh, superior, it either it has to be the same price as what's on the market or has to actually be lower. In France, they mandate that the new drug is a lower price uh, uh, because it's come on the market second. Um, we, we just let drug companies set prices in a monopolistic marketplace. That makes no sense. And the American public is fed up with it. And we should have serious drug price regulation. Uh, and so that would be the third thing I would tell them that we need. Underneath each one of them, there's a lot of detail, but those are the three big top line items. One quick last question. You've devoted your career to healthcare in so many different ways, focusing on ethics and, and policy and payment and uh, reform. Uh, you were one of the authors and, and architects of the Affordable Care Act under President Obama. Uh, so, so many contributions. What, what has been your, your biggest frustration or your disappointment? What has been your biggest achievement? What are you most proud of? Uh, <laughs> 
That's a, it's a complicated question because as a sort of working in public policy, it's, it's my contribution to the Affordable Care Act. Working as an academic, I've started two departments of medical ethics and, and one medical ethics and health policy and, you know, training uh, probably uh, scores of, I don't know what the real number is of, of uh, people, maybe 70, 80 uh, trainees who are now assuming positions of leadership and continuing to contribute. That's things I'm very proud of. And, and a, a number of my scholarly works, you know, sort of endure over a long period of time. And of course, as you work, you want to leave a permanent market. And that is something that, you know, I, I do feel proud about. Dr. Manuel, I don't want to hold you any longer. I, I just want to thank you so much. I want to thank our guests out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. Um, really appreciate everyone who's out there recognize how critically important the work is. This is Zeb Newworth on creating a new health care. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>